Today's episode is brought to you by Alice Miller's More Miracle Than Bird, a sweeping debut that charts the love story of two of literature's most fascinating characters, Georgie Hyde-Lees and her husband, W.B. Yeats. It is, says Catherine Dion, a luminous novel about the women involved with the early 20th century's most notable men poets, offering a fresh portrayal of the women's brilliant complexity. Ambition, artifice, and adventure draw them through a contingent world unsettled by spirits, mediums, the war dead, and soon-to-be-dead. But Miller is up to more than telling a story of these fascinating lives. More Miracle Than Bird makes a sly and disturbing inquiry into how art truly gets made and to whom it belongs. More Miracle Than Bird is out June 2nd from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's guest needs no introduction, and I wouldn't be able to express with words anyways just what a joy and an honor it was to spend several hours with Nikki Finney. If somehow you've gone this long unaware of her or her work, I suspect after your encounter with it, it will be harder to move through the world unaware. And given her career, it is saying a lot that her latest book is, I think, her most remarkable. For the bonus audio archive, Nikki selects and reads from To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, the book composed of Lorraine Hansberry's diaries, letters, and interviews. Finney discusses the formative importance this book had on her when she discovered it in her youth. During our conversation, I also referenced many amazing talks that I watched of Nikki in preparation for our talk. Talks on writing poetry in the Anthropocene. Talks on ancestors and the land. And one of the most electrifying award acceptance speeches. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, how to receive a resource-rich email of avenues to explore with each episode, and many other benefits to being a supporter from becoming an early reader at Ten House Books, to joining the group Brainstorm of who would be the dreamiest guests to invite on the show in 2021, you can find out about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program with Nikki Finney. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet Nikki Finney, 
Finney is a founding member of the Afrolachian Poets, a community of Appalachian poets of color. She's been a faculty and served on the board of Cave Canem, taught poetry as the Guy Davenport Endowed Professor of English at the University of Kentucky for more than 20 years. And since 2013, she has taught as the John H. Bennett Jr. Chair in Southern Letters and Literature at the University of South Carolina, where she teaches in both the Department of English Language and Literature and the African American Studies Program. She also serves as an ambassador for the University of Arizona Poetry Center's Art for Justice Project, which commissions new work from leading writers in conversation with the crisis of mass incarceration in the United States. Nikki Finney is the author of Heartwood, a story cycle for literacy readers, the editor under the auspices of the University of Georgia Press and Cave Canem of The Ringing Ear, Black Poets Lean South, an anthology that showcased the work of 100 African-American poets either from the South or writing about it. And she's the author of four previous poetry collections, On Wings, Made of Gauze, Rice, which won the Pen America Open Book Award, The World is Round, and her last collection, Head Off and Split, which won the 2011 National Book Award in Poetry, in a year that included Adrian Rich, Carl Phillips, Bruce Smith, and Yusuf Kumanyaka as fellow finalists. Her acceptance speech for that award became a thing of legend, described by the host John Lithgow as the best acceptance speech ever for anything. Nikki Finney is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest collection, her first since her National Book Award, entitled Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry from Northwestern University Press, a book of new poems interbraided along with treasured artifacts, images, and photographs. Poet Ross Gay says, Nikki is one of the most important poets in my life. She transformed me in my writing, transformed me in my teaching, and in my approach to teaching and writing. At the time of Nikki Finney's last collection, Terence Hayes said, My question is how does a poet make poetry that is unobstructed by poetry? Without Lucille Clifton, without Adrian Rich, Jack Gilbert and Nikki Finney are the only other poets I can think of working as intensely at being alive. The Sewanee Review says of Love Child's hotbed of occasional poetry. Finney's work is grounded in memory, and she traffics in the trauma and joy implicit in our lives and days. Her poems allied the generational and the personal with ample music. They are, therefore, more than taught with vital details. They are alive with nuance and contrast, where doom is rightfully proximate to creation and grace. Welcome to Between the Covers, Nikki Finney. Thank you, David. So the the first thing we encounter when we open your new collection is a photograph of your Uncle Bobby and a Mm. dedication to him. And I think one of the pleasures of this for longtime readers of your work is that we aren't meeting your uncle for the first time. If we've read your work before, we know the lives and stories of not only your uncle, but of your parents, of your grandparents, a family of, of what you've called Southern North American Africans. And your loved ones sort of become mythical f- figures or mythic figures in the imagination of the reader, I think. And there's a certain pleasure in, in meeting them again, book to book. And I know you write about family that are both alive and family that have passed on, 
but something struck me about a recent conversation you had with Ross Gay where you said that for you, the dead are living. And so I, I kind of wanted to start with talking about your poetry as an engagement with both living family and with ancestors as a central mm -hmm. subject, if, if you could speak to that for us. I wasn't quite sure how to become a poet back in the back, back in the back day when I was walking around with uh, poetry books in one back pocket and books on paleontology <laughs> in the other back pocket, uh, learning poems by heart, listening to Langston Hughes, reading Gwendolyn Brooks in Jet Magazine or Black World. I didn't even know if that was possible but I did know, I love words. I did know that I came from people who told the most amazing stories about struggle, about love, about never giving up. These were stories that lived at the dining room table, lived over the steam at the stove and I was all ears. My ancestors, the ones that had names, were always in the room. The others who did not have names, I began to think about as I got older. And as I got older, I also wanted to know the history that I knew I was not being taught in school so I, at some point, 15, 16, 17, did not know the word autodidactic, but I started learning things on my own and started putting together the patchwork that would become the carpet that I am still riding on and still braiding and, and fixing and patching up some 40 or 50 years later. I, I immediately came to understand, once I read the history, once I put the history around me like a cloak, I knew that no one could take it from me. And I knew that I was changing. I could feel it. When you read about uh, kings and queens and people who um, loved math and invented mathematical things, and then people who invent, who, who, if you come forward, people who had patents for things that we use in American society. And no one told me that an African-American person had made that. And, and so I, I had to become sort of, I had to become captain of my own ship and, and, and sail it. And one of the things that I believed from the very beginning that those ancestors whose names I did not know, those ancestors who had to change their names when they were dragged ashore to America and they had to take the names of the so-called masters and people who thought they owned them. I knew that those folks always remembered their names and I wanted to always remember them going forward. And so my, my, my foundation is, has always and will always be addressing their presence in my life. 
their presence in my community's life and their presence in this country's life. And if no one, I always said, if no one pays attention to this, I, I will pay attention to it. And I will say this with every book I write, with every poem, it will be interspersed, intertwined, woven in, because I feel like millions of kind, tenderhearted, brilliant people have been forgotten. Mm. And so I always think of them. Well, I wanted to read something that Kwame Dawes says about one of your early books, Rice, and ask you a further question about how you place yourself in relationship to others. He said, The Western tradition of the past 200 years has entailed the gradual dismantling of the notion of artist as priest, as voice that finds context and place among the hearers. The poet has been allowed to cloister his, her, little self in closets and dusty drawers, therein to write secret tales about the self, only to die with them in boxes. Later they are found by others who publish them and own them. And Gerald, Manley Hopkins, and Emily Dickinson, what pitiable souls who had no chance to sing to their community, to truthfully bear their hearts and souls, and thus become the voice of their community, their village, while still living. What a poet like Nikki Finney does is to reinstate the concept of the poet as a griot, as priest, not void of subjectivity and a private self, but able to contain the voices of the community, virtually empowered with the gift to develop a soul for the people. This this was written a, a quarter of a century ago, and I was it feels like it to me as a reader, it feels like it rings true more than ever about your work, but I wondered if it rang true to you. And if it did, if maybe you could speak to this notion of poet as, as griot of singing to one's community about, of placing an individual life within, within a, uh, a stream of lives. There've been so many times in my life when I have not known how exactly to do something and I mentioned before, wanting to follow poetry out, if that, if that was possible, wanting to not even saying that I wanted to become a poet, just wanting to follow poetry out and where would it take me? And because I, because it was not, there was no path for, you know, ready-made because People kept saying, oh, that's that's really cute what you're doing over there with that pencil. But uh, one day you will you will get a real job and you'll find your real path. And I would whisper to myself, trying to be respectful to those kind people. This is my job. I, I will hold on to this. This is what I want to do. And so when I was nine or 10 or 12, and in my community, something of merit happened or was about to happen because I had that pencil on my ear and that little tiny notebook in my back pocket. People who I had great respect for, people who did things, people who built houses, people who would string electric wires through a house and bring lights 
people who were nurses, people who were teachers, I saw them, I saw those people that I had great ad adoration for doing what they did in the world. And I took the same feeling and responsibility to words privately, of course, because this was nothing to sort of boast about. So I wanted, because those folks around me were so good at what they did so quietly, it, it, wasn't not, it wasn't nightly news what they did. They were just doing their work in the world. I wanted to do my work in the world. Mm. And I decided my work in the world would be with words. And so they would ask me once they saw how serious I was to write a poem for that occasion. Write a poem for Emmanuel Methodist Church turning 50 years old. Can you do that? they would say, and I would say, yes, I'll, I'll work on that. And can you write a poem for Mrs. Robinson's birthday? She'll be 90 next month. We'd like a poem. And so I, it's really when some, when some, when people who you respect ask you to do something for a moment in the community, then you become known for that thing. I didn't set out to become that, that quote that Kwame, that you read from Kwame then 25 years ago and now makes me so still because the griot is, <laughs> is the heartbeat, is the memory, is the long memory, is the, the thing that keeps the community alive when the people die. I mean, it's like the most, cherished thing you could ever in my life call me mm. and when he when I read that way back then I, I couldn't even I couldn't speak with him for a long time because Kwame does not use words he does not mean I knew that much and I felt once again I was I don't even know that I think you're right I think that I was living to do that I think that I was reaching to do that. And I don't even know how he wrote those words 25 years ago, but I feel like when somebody like Kwame Dawes writes something like that for you, then you live into it. Mm. Even if you aren't in it yet, you will say, yes, that's, that's, that's where I want to stand. I want, that is where I am going. And so it, it was so directional for me. 25 years ago, it remains directional for me. And I'm just, I'm, I'm quieted in a way because you read it. It's like one of the most sacred things that has ever been written about my work and about me. And so I, I don't know, other than my great respect for my history and for the people whose faces passed you know, passed through my eyes and my mind and my heart with no name, who were here before me, who's on whose shoulders and I stand and on whose path I continue to walk. I am honored to be thought of as a griot. I, I hope it's true. And I, it's not a thing that makes your head big. It's something that makes your steps more sure. 
Could we hear the opening poem to the collection, Auction Block of Negro Weather? Yes. Auction Block of Negro Weather. The eye wall was human. Black skin could not take off running from this swell and surge convergence. Legal tender built and brewed this storm into a quick moving cell of half-whispered goodbyes. Twisting outstretched arms, a father's wailing mouth turned up to the night sky was forever. A mother's eyes sunk below the county's waterline, world without end. One three-by-three vortex of epic ongoing drowning. Forests of human oak raised by the Zephyr Force winds of banknotes. Family trees broken, leaf by leaf by leaf, scattered by the winds of profit. Ten million fingers and toes divvied up for chicken change. No hats or scarves or wings issued for the highly skilled wearing black skin. Beloveds, the elements, out in the elements, low tide, lightning strikes touching the ground where they stood waiting, screams pushing the air unmeasured, six million eyes and arms in whirling disbelief unraveling from each other. High tide, goodbye, lovey. A deluge of super wind made by the mouths of children being sucked away. Women opened like bank vaults, their gold coins snatched. Jerome is made to bear his teeth. Boy and girl twins pulled north and south. Sweet fruit on a stem. Hope ground into a powder, later worn around the neck for good luck. Fathers sew their own eyes shut for what comes next. The new ocean. Salt streams each face under the fat and cumulus negro gathered clouds. Holding her tiny wet hand, his long-drawn monsoon begins. Her feet are caught running off the wooden stump into the air. Don't forget me, Benna. His voice, her barometer, drops in the dew as he disappears in the back of a wagon. Told not to turn and wave, he waves and turns until she is a black dot in a torn white dress. Amina grows wings that stretch and bear up against the sight of daughters chained around the same feet she rubbed with rabbit oil the night before. You will never be out of my sight. Rose promises the dust in the shape of a sun trailing the back of a horse. Jocko and Juju go colorblind. When they arrive in South Carolina, the rows of cotton and long squalls of blue and green, a handsome woman stands in the middle of hurricane force winds. Her 10-year-old daughter is led away by a man with a whip whose zipper keeps flying open. The weather vanes of their sweet tobacco breath still hover in every public square of every city of the Republic. I was here, they remind us, if we dare lift our eyes to look. The promise of their stolen lives crumbled in between the joists and the starlight of the jet stream. A handsome people 
who arrived with trembling broken hearts, punctured lungs, liver spots, a lovesome lot who arrived with belly buttons and blackberry moles, came slew-footed and left-handed, cried easily or not at all. A red-blooded tribe who ran away and ran back for others, who fought and molded a nation out of infested swamps, impassable timberland, and eye-wall after eye-wall of hate. It was cataclysmic. Water was everywhere. Their easy-on-the-eyes hearts pushed back, but the conquerors kept coming. I've been listening to Nikki Finney read the opening poem of her new collection, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry. So before this opening poem, it is immediately clear that we're not in a conventional poetry collection. <laughs> we, we, right. op- we open with the photo of and dedication to your uncle. Yeah. Then there's an epigraph by Langston Hughes. Yeah. Then the table of contents. Yeah. Then an introduction and an orientation to occasional poems and hotbeds. Mm-hmm. And then we get the acknowledgments, not in the back of the book, but right up front. <laughs> then a handwritten note from your father, a woodcut by Valerie Maynard. Then two more epigraphs, one from Emerson and another from Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. And then a photograph that you found in an antique shop then the title page, then the image of a box from the Central African Kingdom of Cuba, and then the opening poem we just heard. So I was hoping maybe you could you could talk to us a little about the way you're juxtaposing artifacts from your family, historical mm-hmm. artifacts, found artifacts, your own words alongside the words of all these others uh, before we arrive at this poem that you just read. David, you asked really, really good questions. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say, I've been talking about this book for a year and no one has asked me that, uh, you know, just the sort of coming out kind of party for it. And I think, I think people are intimidated by the non-linear, well, not everybody, of course. Um, But I, I think this was one of the concerns that the publisher had that, they wanted it to be as uh, accessible and, you know, easy to sort of um, enter. And I wasn't really concerned about that. I, I really wanted people to begin wherever they opened the book. And one of the treasures that I have found in the last two or three months is getting notes and text messages from people who know me and don't know me and have the book and they open the book and they begin to read wherever they open the book. And I think that is just kind of um, amazing that I hope that something like that would happen. Some people even like go back and forth and then they start the second time through by beginning at the beginning and going through now that they kind of know that have some sort of orientation. But I did not want you to be lost when you open when you began um, to enter this book. I wanted you to be curious. I wanted the reader to be curious. I wanted the reader to bite down on something that was in the human family and con- and and continue to to turn the page. 
Uncle Bobby is so critical at the beginning of this book. And he, he, he had, there's a picture of him holding a, a doll and it's not the doll. He, my, my uncle Bobby was, um, was supposed to go and fight in Vietnam and he became a conscientious objector. And his objection was, I will, I do not want to kill another human being um, for a war that I don't feel is right. And so his punishment was to go and work for a community business. And he chose a black doll factory in Los Angeles um, in 1967, 1968. And because of that, he sent me one of the first dolls he ever made that came off the assembly line. And I was a girl in the South and I could, I'd only seen white dolls uh, in my young life. And to hold that black doll with that Afro um, hair and chocolate skin and smile, it was transformative. It was like, I didn't even know you could do that. It was the moment where I began to say, oh, I, I didn't know you could do that. Let me, let me check this out. I didn't, if you can do that, if you can make a black doll look like me or my friends, then you can do anything. You know, the, the sort of covers were off what could be done in the world. And Uncle Bobby was also gay. He was also a photographer. Um, he fought for human rights with the ACLU in Los Angeles. He was, he was vividly alive in my young imagination. He was vividly passionate about the things he was passionate about. I just, I loved him as an uncle. He was so tender and present and I wanted to thank him by putting him at the beginning of this book for all the things he taught me um, in, the, in the short while he was here. And so that, he begins the book, he had to, I knew that when I was working on it. And then you, I found this amazing quote by Langston Hughes talking about he's gonna lay off political poetry for a while. And I thought this was almost funny because, and he starts talking about, um, since the world situation methinks is too complicated and for so simple in art, I'm, I'm going back and indeed have, have gone back to nature, Negroes and love. And I, I stood up because I thought, that's what this book is about. Yeah. I couldn't believe I had found this, you know, and I was actually reading a biography but, um, on him. And I just, I, it was the best biography I'd ever read by him. And that quote was inside and it was a quote I had never seen before. And my life is always like this. I asked the universe, help me figure this out. I'm not sure I'm going in the right direction. Am I going in the right direction? And then something will come along to stamp quietly, you know, without a lot of fanfare. And if I'm listening in the right way, it says to me, keep going. And so that's what that quote did. And then I, I, I'm a, I'm a avid reader of everything. I, I love research back to the autodidactic nature of, of myself and my, my early life. And I found the quote by, I knew the quote by Emerson and I always had it written in a, in my epigraph book. And then I saw the quote by Sandra Bland and I thought, what if these were facing each other? They're, they're like 140 years apart. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what if this picture that I found in, and I'm, so I'm making a collage, I'm, I'm thinking about the intersectionality of human beings. We, we live in this world that everybody wants to separate us and make us, you know, different skin color, different humanity, different brain size, different. And I'm like, that is so not how I see human beings. And we've allowed the voices, the louder voices in our world to, to, to convince us that we belong in that circle and we belong in in that circle and you belong in that circle and never the two shall mix. And I am just furious up with that sort of conception of my humanity, of human beings. And so I fight against it every time I write anything. And so I wanted, as I was telling the editor, I wanted these, I wanted Emerson and Sandra Bland to look at each other in perpetuity in this book, because I feel like Emerson saying the sugar they raised was excellent Nobody tasted blood in it. Had everything to do with Good Morning, My Beautiful Kings and Queens, which was Sandra Bland's quote. And I know that I'm, um, I think I think into things and I, I don't want to explain it. You know, like the publisher always wants to say, well, do you want to talk about that a little bit on a, on a credit page? No, I don't. I want a human being to read that and know that it's intentional and to, maybe they can find their way you know, just like you did with that question to the heart of it. This is a slow book. I feel like it, I feel like at first when I realized the 10 readings that I was about to do after the launch were canceled, I didn't panic. I didn't get anxious. I felt like this book has thick, long legs. I feel like it could walk across the waters of this virus, of this pandemic, of this self-isolation time and still get to the other side of the bank. Mm. I re and I still believe that. And I thought in the meantime, people potentially will pick this up. And because we are home, because the clock has changed a little bit and it slowed us down, that is what perhaps is needed in this moment to read this in the right way. If we were fast paced and still going around the track like we have been do, you know, doing for a long, long time, maybe you would miss something. There's so many things embedded in this book that begin in the beginning um, with, with those things that you so beautifully pointed out before you get to the poem, before you get to the hotbeds, and before you get to the occasional poem, I am setting up the visual. I am setting up the figurative, my love for the figure, figurative and the, my love for the visual. And I am setting up the expectation that this is not, there's no typical thing about anything about this book. And I want you to know that as soon as you open the first page. I want you to trust your eyes, trust your own indicators. Uh, when the quote from Timothy Abbott, I met Timothy Abbott on a plane from Massachusetts to Atlanta. And I love sitting down on a plane or I, I used to, I haven't been on a plane in a long time, but I used to sit down on a plane. And if there was a stranger who smiled at me, I knew we were gonna have a good conversation.
And by the time the plane landed, Timothy Abbott had, had told me 50 things that I wanted to scribble down in my notebook, in my, in my hotbed notebook, because I knew they were worthy of more thought. And one of the things I scribbled down was, before the age of propellers, blue whales could communicate pole to pole. Now they can't hear each other. Wow. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. I want to take what you've just said and and move in a, a counter direction from it. Um, sure. Because there's another element. I mean, we have this nonlinear element, the juxtaposition of image and text and different images from different points in history and different voices in conversation from, with each other from different points yes. in history, including your own voice. But we also have, which runs throughout a lot of, or all of your work, this sense of story and the sense of narrative. Mm-hmm. And I was recently listening to your editor, Parnisha Jones, on the Verses podcast, Denez Smith and Franny Choi's uh, poetry podcast. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that for her as a poet, it's not about the book, it's not about the page, but rather it's about getting back to the old fashioned, getting back to sitting on the porch, mm-hmm. to saying what you mean and to passing the stories on that have been told on this porch. Mm-hmm. And later in the same conversation, she says that everything about one's family is buried under the porch where this is <laughs> happening. So I, I, I thought of this because I, I think both of you as poets are using story and using narrative in a, in a, a, str- in a strong way in your work. And I wondered if you could speak to story in relationship to poetry for you, because it does feel like while you are doing all of these things that you mentioned and you could enter the book at any point, that there's also a way in which there's a story in the way that you've arranged the the pieces, even the, even the visual pieces to me feel like I I can sense uh, the movement of your, of your, your mind heart Mm -hmm. as you assemble them into into, into something that feels story-like. I want us to understand when you read this very special book that I am not special. I want young poets, older poets, readers, carpenters, plumbers, anybody to understand that it sounds so cliche. It's not that we just have, everybody has a story. It's that all those stories are valuable. And I, I, I felt that way back when, when I was uncovering African history and African-American history. I was like, whoa, this man invented the thing that changed the, the, the railroad. Wait a minute, this woman, Black woman invented the first security alarm for houses. How come we don't know this? Everybody's story matters. And you don't have to invent something for that to be true. What that does, when you understand the power of that, it makes you less likely to not like yourself, it makes you less likely 
to feel inferior to someone else. If your story has value in the world in which you live, your shoulders go back a bit. And if the other person looking at you understands that also, they might not get in their truck and follow behind you with a shotgun when you are jogging through a community. Everybody's story matters. I believe what Kwame was talking about in terms of griot comes out of my beloved stance about storytelling. I learned history by listening to the stories at the dinner table. We had to be in place at six o'clock at my mother and father's dinner table. We ran through the streets to make sure we got there. That was, there were, that was just, you had to be there. Not because you thought you were gonna hear a story, but because that was the time in the day we could put our eyes on each other. My father could see we were still in one piece. We had not blown up anything or <laughs> gotten hit and we, he had to check us out. And in the, in the interim, he also, there were also stories told. When you know what you come from, when you know who you come from, that's a part of you. If I didn't know those stories, I would not be the poet that I am. I would not, I would not care about stories. There are stories that were told at that table with my two brothers there, they have no memory of. What makes one child remember the stories told at the table and another child have no memory? I don't know. I do know my mother called me her sensitive child. And that wasn't a nice term. <laughs> that was, you're too sensitive. You're sensitive about everything. You're, you know, and, and, and yet as I got older, one of the things I remembered and, and, and figured out and protected was I became a poet because of that sensitivity. And so it's not, I'm not special. And people who tell stories are everywhere. I can't, when this book came out, we, we had a virtual launch. I had a friend that I've known for 20 years call me after the virtual launch and she said, Nikki, th those letters your father wrote you. She said, my father wrote me letters too. She said, I didn't keep them, but I remember them. He always put a note in a greasy cheeseburger bag or <laughs> he would put a note on my mirror before I went to school. There were little handwritten things. She said, and she started citing them by memory. And I said, and she was like, I just wish I kept them. And I said, you, you do not need to have them just because I kept them doesn't mean you had to keep them. What you kept clearly is the feeling they brought you. What you kept clearly by heart is what he said to you. But she hadn't thought about that in 30 years. One of the things I hope this book would do would let people know how that ephemera, how those things that we threw away or that stuck in a desk or on the back of a letter, those are our stories. That's how we got here. That's 
how we went left instead of right, went, you know, two blocks up and made that turn. I'm so curious about that in a, in a, in a very unscientific way, but in a, in a humanitarian, holistic, I, I don't think we, I don't think we're caring enough about that. I think we think we're, we're so caring about the outer world and, and what we put on. But this book is about the interior of us. It's the, it's the interior of me for sure, but it's not the interior of me as, as Kwame was saying, somebody you know over in a corner. No, this is me out in the world, living, becoming, growing into the poet and storyteller that I want so badly to become. Well, even though the collection's dedicated to your uncle, it does feel like one of the main stories of the book is the love between you and your your father. Mm. Uh, and and you mentioned that. And this we get the story from the time you're a young girl until his mm. death. Mm-hmm. And frequently throughout the book, we get these amazing handwritten notes and letters and post-its that he wrote to you that your your friend wished she had kept with her own father. Mm. And they're they're remarkable. And I was I was hoping you could talk to us about your dad um paint paint for us the father you knew but also the father out in the world who who um was a remarkable person out in the world as well my father saw me he saw me and he named me love child that was his private name for me off the record. It was what he whispered to me when he was close. It was what he wrote when he wrote his letters, dear love child. And for the longest, I could not figure out what that was for, why? I mean, it was sweet, right? It was sweet. But as I got older, I realized, oh my goodness, it wasn't just sweet. He wanted me to know what I had come from. He knew that I would be entering a world where Black girls were named many things that were not true. And he did not want me to lose my place. So he called me that in his private breath and it stamped me. I knew I had come from love. I knew he loved me. I knew that there was nothing I could say to him that would push him out of my life or, or make us lose our connection. When I saw his handwriting on the front of the book, that's his handwriting on the cover, I, the art director got a special call from me because she surprised me with that. She was so affected by the emotion between us. She said his name, his handwriting should be on the cover of the book. And so she superimposed from one of the letters uh, to the cover. My dad lost his mother in childbirth. So on March 23rd, which was my father's birthday, a white doctor was called to the farm in Virginia. And this is in another poem that I have 
in in Rice at the afterbirth 1931. And my family did not know that he was drunk. They smelled a little alcohol on him. And because this is the way the story goes, speaking of story, they had called him out to the farm. He had come in the door smelling like a little bit of alcohol, but he seemed to be okay. He delivered my father. He delivered him in a very hard way. He broke his foot during the delivery. And also he left, the doctor left the afterbirth inside my grandmother. And nobody knew that because he was only one in the room during the birth. And so nine days later, my grandmother died of gangrene and my father never got to meet her. And so I look just like Mama Colleen, his mother. And we have two pictures of her. And so that began probably a part of our connection. And then the rest was emotional and I was his only daughter and we were inseparable. And he was a tender-hearted, loving father in a world where black men were not seen as tender-hearted or loving or even a father. They weren't available, they weren't home, they were something else. And that was him at home. He was overprotective of us because of what happened to his mother. There are places in the book where I, there's one part where I talk about when he gave me the keys to the car and I drove to New York one day, one weekend, we were, the family was going up and every hundred miles he would say, you okay? And I was, I was 17, I was like, yes, daddy, I'm fine. But I didn't understand back to the intersectionality of our lives. He was, he was such a good father because he didn't know his mom, because he wanted to be a good father. He wanted to prove to his mother that he could still, he could be a good father even without her having raised him. And so I didn't know all that was going on at the time. So at home, that's who he was, but also out in the world, he cared so much about black people and about civil rights and human rights. My father was, was recruited out of his law class in 1953 when all of the schools in South Carolina were segregated. He passed the bar and he waited tables for white lawyers for a year until the segregation laws changed and integration happened. And he opened, you know, put up his shingle and started practicing law and they recruited him from one tiny small town in South Carolina to Sumter, South Carolina. And this was a civil rights um, kind of melting pot at the time. And they knew that young black people would be going to jail. And so daddy came as a 25, 26 year old to Sumter to get college students out of jail who were protesting the injustices uh, in South Carolina. And so he became well known for that. He also became very well known for bringing white people and black people who typically were not speaking to each other into the same room for conversations that he felt we all needed to have. So he um, moved up the ranks uh, as from a civil rights attorney to a circuit judge, to the Supreme Court, to the chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, the first black chief justice. And there was a poem that I read for that investiture that 
I looked over and I'd never seen my father cry before and I'm watching him and there's a video um, where we both crying. And so he had this dual life. He was an amazing father, but he was also protective of the human rights and civil rights and, and humanity of people in South Carolina. He fought, he was the lone dissenter against the death penalty in South Carolina in 1973, when everybody else was just like, no, if you kill somebody, you gotta die. He would get at the microphone and say, I am not God. That is not the decision that I believe we should be making. And he made it by himself. He would stand there by himself. And I watched him and I learned a lot about when you believe something so passionately, how you really can stand there by yourself and speak. He was a great guy. Um, and then in 2013, we got the first signs that his, um, his mind was changing. And my, I knew I wanted to come home and help my mom take care of him. So I left Kentucky and uh, applied for a job at the University of South Carolina and came home. And I had, this is such a, I mean, I had five years with my father as an adult not as a kid, not as a child, but as an adult. And the roles, had, you know, what happens is if we live long enough, the roles change and you start taking care of your dad. And I was just honored to be with him in those days and beside my mom. And I put the book on hold because I knew that I, w I was writing about him, but I had no idea how it would all come to be. And it wasn't until after he passed on December 3rd, 2017, that I began to have the mental space and emotional space to sit with the things I had scribbled as hotbeds, the occasional poems that were waiting on me to do something with. And I began to see the architecture of this book forming around his great spirit, his great love, and his name for me that he had given me 50 years before. Well, like like I said at the beginning, there was a the pleasure in um, encountering your uncle again. If we've read your other books, the the circularity and the porousness between your different works. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, you mentioned this this story of your paternal grandmother, and at, at one point in in Love Child, were at the deathbed with you of your other grandmother, mm -hmm. and I couldn't help but think of this story that you just shared of of your your father's mother when we're there, even though it's un, it's not stated, or I don't remember if it's stated in, in this collection, but it, the memory reoccurs. Yeah. Like we, we have a memory of your own family history from your past work as we're with you. Uh, it's, it's, it feels almost magical to me. Um, I want to, I want to take something about your dad and um, connected to what we were talking before about image and text and nonlinearity and story, because one of you have these powerful juxtapositions of artifacts with your prose and poetry in the book, and one of them is the uh, poem about George Stinney, uh, the, yeah. perhaps the longest poem in the book, and it's bookended by. George's mugshots on one side, and then on the other side, a mixed media collage that was made by, by you, entitled "Daddy Stands Alone Against the Death Penalty with the Help of His Six-Year-Old Self and Auntie." 
And then there are all these, there's a, there are these obvious resonances by this juxtaposition that your father was an outspoken advocate for the abolition of the death penalty and um, the scenario of George Stinney, which I, I hope you'll share with us. But there's also these uncanny resonances between um, George Stinney and your father and your experience of going to um, the court 70 years later when the Stinney family is appealing for acknowledgement of the mistakes made in the justice system. So I was hoping maybe you could share the story of George Stinney and how it intersects both with your, your father in one way, but then your father and you in another uh, decades later. In 1944, in Sumter, South Carolina, which is where I was raised, not where I was born, but where I moved when I was four, when daddy was recruited to that small civil rights rich town. In 1944, so that would have been um, maybe 11, 12 years before that, a young black boy, 14 years of age, was at his home um, and he was arrested for the killing of two white girls who had been out looking for Maypops, which is a fruit in the South, the day before, and their bodies had been found. And somebody had pointed the finger at George J. Stinney Jr. as the killer. He was arrested. He was taken to jail. Uh, it's a very long story. It's, and the poem is a very long recounting a lot of the facts of that. There was no, there were no, um, there was no evidence that George had done this at all. And yet, because he was black and because of the times, uh, a uh, really a, a kind of a lynch mob had, had met outside of the courthouse, outside of the jail, and were chanting and pushing this forward. He was found a 10 minute jury conversation, found him guilty. And he was taken from the courthouse to the jail. He was given an execution sentence of, I believe, 30 days later. And when they came to, they came to take him out of the jail, um, he had a Bible in his hand. And he was walked to the electric chair with that Bible because, not to read it, but because he was so little he was so small that still is hard to even say, but he was made to sit on the Bible so that the, the hat that had the electrodes, the metal hat would fit on his head. And his feet were hardly touching the floor and the 2,400 volts of electricity did not kill him immediately because probably the hat and the electrodes on his legs didn't fit well because this was a chair made for men, made for an adult. 
and he was 14 year old, 95 pound boy. And so they had to give him two volts, two jolts of this electricity to properly kill, properly quote unquote, kill him. And after that, he, his family stated that he was unrecognizable. And George J. Stinney Jr. was 14 and he was the youngest human being ever killed in the United States of America. And this was a boy who grew up in the same town I grew up in. This was a boy who wanted to be an artist. He would take pencils and paper and draw airplanes and cars with those big fins on it. And that was what he spent his time doing when he wasn't in school. He also had a cow that he had to take care of out in the backyard because the cow provided milk and sustenance for his family. Um, my father and George J. Stinney Jr. were about the same age. My father was living in Virginia at the time. And when he heard he was going to South Carolina, my grandfather was the dean, had gotten a job as the dean of one of the historically black schools in South Carolina. And so he was leaving Baltimore and going south. All his friends teased him and told him he was about to be lynched. And so my father had great fear coming south as a boy, even though he did not, maybe he didn't know George J. Stinney's name personally, but word had gotten out that this is how young black boys were treated in the south. The difference between as the poem navigates, tries to navigate, George J. Stinney Jr.'s family was illiterate they um, had very little except that cow. My father's father had a bit more. They had a car and they came into town on that car, in that car. And so I make, a, I make suggestions in the poem about though they were two black boys in the South around the same time, that we often don't spend enough time looking at what happens to people who have so little and what happens to people who have so much more. And so here is my father. And it, this was the, the really hard thing about weighing this in the courtroom. When we go, we return to the courtroom 70 years later, I am facing a portrait of my father that has been hanging there for 20 years as the first black circuit court judge in South Carolina. We're, I'm facing him as I'm writing notes from the trial. My brother is the solicitor in this case. He is against the George Stinney defense table. And so black people have come into the jobs that white people only had back in 1943, but the law hasn't changed. My, my point is the law is still against those who have so little. The law hasn't changed much. And one of the things my father used, and I used to battle about in the sweetest way 
was, I would say, daddy, the law is not fair. And he would say, baby, the law works. And so we would go back and forth, me and my poet's hat, he with his law degree. And we would, we would, you know, have these conversations about the law. And so this story is a very important one for me, having grown up in Sumter, me having grown up the daughter of the man who fought against the death penalty in South Carolina with such passion and verve, me looking at George Stinney Jr. dead at 14 and my father coming into the state to become what he becomes. And so the world is round. And I wanted to take both of these juxtapose, you know, juxtapose these two young hearts and minds and let it make us look at the inequities that still exist in our society and the things that can happen to some of us who have so little and those of us who have so much more can rise in a different kind of way. And so there are no answers there. They're just questions, I hope. And, and I, don't, I don't know if I'll ever, I mean, it's a very long poem. I don't know if I'll ever, <laughs> I hope I'll be able to read it to an audience and have some sort of discussion one day. I read it to the University of Arizona audience uh, two days after finishing it. And it's a lot different poem than it, than it was then. But it's a poem that matters greatly to me. One of the things, and I'll just say this, um, I, looked at the, I looked at the arrest report of George J. Stinney Jr. When he was arrested, the person checking him into the jail said he's 95 pounds and he has maroon eyes. And I said to myself, maroon eyes? Who has maroon eyes? What 14 year old boy has maroon eyes? He's making him out to be a monster from the moment he walks into the jail. So there is, you know, repetition is holy. And so the repetition of maroon eyes happens in the poem quite a bit because I want to deposit in the reader's mind how the state of South Carolina saw George Stinney Jr. at 14, not as a boy, not as a boy who loved to draw, not as a boy who had a future, uh, but really as a monster. And he was anything but that. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to the poet Nikki Finney about her collection, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry. Could we hear one of the hotbeds? I was hoping maybe we could hear hotbed number seven. Yes. For five years, as the dementia turns from telephone game to talking drum, Daddy is honored at every church barbecue, Mason Hall, middle school, high school, urban league, and NAACP function in the state of South Carolina. There are hundreds of plaques on walls, in boxes, and in drawers to prove this. We never knew what he would say after being given his award. In the last year of his life, he rarely knew what year it was, but his smile and politeness remained legendary. He remained present, accountable in his own private way. 
He spent his life charming rattlesnakes and foxes into the same room in order to have much needed and prescient conversations. And before they left each other, he made them light each other's cigarettes. In this last moment of his life, it did not matter if he was walking with his cane or being rolled around in his wheelchair. The human sun that he naturally manufactured was still in great supply. People who stopped him just to say hello didn't care if he reported to them that it was 1917, 1961, or 2016. They only wanted to see him and take a picture and be around his wobbly wheelchair walking a live black history self. To the untrained eye, I suppose he looked a little lost and out of sorts. But if the person had a face or a hand or a body that was anywhere in front of daddy, he would reach out for them and say one of those utterly gracious things that only he could say. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Last night, they honored daddy in Charleston. The whole family was there. I was asked to give the family's response to his award, but the audience really wanted to see him, not me. So at the end, he seemed to understand that he needed to come up and say something. He walked forward, leaning on his cane and dragging that bad right knee that for 30 years he refused to replace. I handed him the mic and then walked away. That's when I heard him say, my two boys are fine boys, but the only girl is different. She is the love child, the one who calls me by all my names. Been listening to poet Nikki Finney read from her latest poetry collection, Love Child, Top Bit of Occasional Poetry. So in your National Book Award acceptance speech, you do something similar to what you do in this collection in terms of <laughs> positioning yourself as a poet within a family history, which rests within a larger history of a country and of a people. You open with the slave codes of South Carolina in 1739. You connect your winning this award for poetry through your family's own history, that where you grew up, there were no bookstores and the library was segregated. And you end your speech for this writing award with the statement that black people were the only people in the U.S. ever explicitly forbidden to become literate. And one thing that I've noticed through all of your work is an interest in, in the origins of words, in their mm. etymologies, in mm. what is being said beyond the surface meaning of the word. So in, in past collections, you've teased apart the meaning of words like thresh and pluck. And in this one, you look at the word occasion and also at the word hotbed. And the book is peppered with hotbeds, like the one you just read. So I was hoping maybe you could tell us what a hotbed is for you and why you choose this term for these, these works in particular. I've been keeping a journal. I've been keeping up with words since I was nine or 10. I've been devoted to having a place for keeping words that I wanna re revisit since I was nine or 10. I guess we, you could call these journal books. 
Um, they have lots of different titles and names on their front of the front of them. Some of them just have epigraphs as an epigraph book, things that I want to use, quotes from other people that I want to use later in my life or with another, with a, with a work that I don't know that I'm going to work on. But the words resonate so deeply inside me. I want to save them, protect them, keep them, plant them in the bed of something, hoping they might grow longer, stronger, taller. And one of the things that, that coming to know words has done for me is make me recognize the narrow way so many people use words. Words are root systems. There's a root system there. And so when I, when I discovered etym the etymology of words, it was like, it's always Christmas morning. It's always a birthday for me when that happens. Because I think the world really uses this in one way, but there is, you know, there's a poem I have in, in, in the book Rice where my uncle Freddie used to say, you're all slaves. And immediately he would say that to a group of family members. And if you lived in this world, if you live in America, you would think, oh, he's talking about the slaves, you know, the enslavement of African people. No, he meant you're, you're a slave to things you cannot do without. You're enslaved, you're a slave to capitalism. You know, you always got to have the newest hat and the new, and that, that is what that does for me. It flips the script. It makes us dive deeper into who we are and how we got here. And if we would just look at how we use words and how we don't use the first definition, we use the easiest definition. It would tell us so much about our society and how much we miss about getting to know each other. And so a hotbed is where I place th those words or a concept that I wanna think more about, that I wanna deepen into the soil of my head and heart that I think something can grow from. And so my journal books, my journal books for 50 years have words in them and concepts and ideas and things I was thinking about as a girl of 15 or a young woman of 19 or 30 or 40. And so I have a bookshelf of 159 journal books in which there are thousands of hotbeds where words and ideas have grown into the George Stinney poem or the afterbirth 1931 or um, auction block of Negro weather. There always is a beginning point. There always is something that buzzes in me that makes me think, wait, don't keep moving forward. Stop here for a second and gather this seed of an idea, this seed of a word because something will sprout from it if you give it the right attention and the right, uh, the right soil. And so hotbed, when I started thinking about what I wanted to call those things, I didn't want to call them journal entries. I didn't want, cause they're not verbatim from the journal 
themselves, they've been edited and they've been pulled and stretched into, you know, things that can sit beside the occasional poems in the book. And so I thought, oh, I'm a, I love being outside. I love having my hands in the garden. And I'd heard the term hotbed once. And I was, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody at the press and they thought, oh, this term hotbed, you know, this could, this, could, this could throw people. They could think this is something, this is not the kind of book you want. I was like, let it throw them. Yes, let's do that. Let's, let's, let's let them think whatever they wanna think but let's also be true to what a hotbed is. And a hotbed is where a person who knows gardening, who loves to garden, begins the plant itself. Well, I, I want to take that into questions of the non-human in your work also. Because I was recently, I watched a talk that you gave at the University of Kansas called Making Poetry in Our Anthropocene Age, where it is clear that you're writing about nature is at least partly motivated by how much we are taking from the earth versus what we are giving back to the earth. Mm. But the experience of nature in your work, at least for me is also much like encountering your uncle or your father, not for the first time, but seeing them again, book to book. And mm. I think most particularly of the giant Oak trees from your family's land. Mm. And I wanted to, in that, in light of that, ask you about nature in relationship to time because time and different scales of time feels like a very important part of this book. On one level, you could say this book is the story of you becoming a writer. It contains the first poem you wrote when you were 10 years old to your mom, drafts of some of your early poems, letters from editors, newspaper clippings from some of your readings. On another level, it is how you came into your own under the loving gaze of your father and the gaze that you returned to him. On another scale, it is the lineage of women in your family across many generations. But there's always the presence of something else non-human. In the talk, you were talking about your love of dinosaurs. But in this collection, it feels most notably trees and whales. And that presence makes sure, at least for me, that, we, that I don't settle too comfortably in a human notion of time. That it's underscoring that something longer much longer and older is happening alongside or along with what we are experiencing. So I was, I was hoping you could talk about how, for instance, the photo of your mom next to a 200-year-old tree or your mention in your acknowledgments of the two fishermen in California who jump on the back of a whale to free it from plastic fishnets, how these elements are, are being woven into your family story and into the story that you're singing back to your community? I try to live a whole life. I want to. I want to be able to hear voices, human voices. I want to be able, I love walking through the forest. I am alive. I am, I come from women who grew, grew things out of the earth and ate those things. And I can hear my grandmother saying right now, I sleep so much better when I eat something I've grown. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I trust, I trust her knowledge of that. I trust, as she would say, there are things you can decide with your head and there are other things that must be decided with your belly. Listen to them both. When I walk through gardens and forests and valleys and seashores, I am not using my head. My body is listening and I want to be in tune to that. That's why I heard that line that Timothy gave me about how whales used to talk to each other. I think we lose so much as a, as a human society because we are not paying attention to all the other kinds of life around us. I think we shortchange ourselves. We narrow our minds. We shorten our lives because just look at what has happened in the last two months. Humans disappeared. Animals took over the streets. Wolves down by the bay, uh, you know, just alive, not, and they know as soon as we leave that we're not there. We have so much, we've destroyed so much area where we need to be in a symbiotic relationship with the forest and the animals. And, you know, we go to those places to, to see the national parks and we have to care more about how we live in tandem with things, I think. Because if not, we are hurling towards the cliff because we need those things to be our most human selves. And I've learned that by spending summers with my grandmother on a farm in this upstate of South Carolina and watching her roll cantaloupes and watermelons into a, a, my, my, my carriage and, and walk back the, down the road to the house where we split that and sit out in the sun and realize our humanity. I, I too believe that I sleep better when I eat the foods that I grow. And I feel like more of us should understand and know that kind of power and that kind of um, existence. So I do write a, a lot about, you know, these are also interconnected things. And I feel when I write about monarch butterflies and my birthday in the same stanza, uh, as the the opening the the title poem for this collection, that's there. There are no conflicts there. I am I am I am one with the world that I am possessed by, and I am uh, I don't I don't see I don't see any kind of edge edge there. I feel like I want the monarchs to survive, and their survival has everything to do with my survival. And I don't think I think we're getting farther away from that. As, as land gets, you know, encroached more and more, as people only hear about money, as people only hear about things, I think that we, um, we are spiritual, social beings. And I think we need to feed ourselves in every way possible. And this is one of the ways, or many of the ways that I feed myself. Well, there are so many potential amazing examples to 
potentially choose from in the book to have you read, but I was hoping maybe you could read another hotbed, uh, number 88, uh, which I think is a nice. Yes. Intermingling of the human and the non-human. You, you just use my, my best word, David, the minglement. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I love that word. Hotbed 88, on the river, walking the levee flood wall in Northampton. I notice the woolly worms are out. I am all red and black with jubilation, actually dancing. I nearly step on a dead bat, rolled on its back, claws up, pointing wide into the air. It shouldn't still be moving not from the look of how long it seems to have been here. So I lean closer. Black and orange beetles are exiting its body. The bat is not moving, but they are. I continue on my morning hike, remembering this coexistence lesson from a weekend of forensics shows that I made myself watch, even though after I could not sleep for a week. What happens to the body after the heart stops? How death gives birth to other lives that invade almost immediately. How they continue in their own way to represent the ticking clock. Each of them a symbol of how long the body has been dead. Carry-on beetles, frenetic insect timepieces, walking death clocks with short and long hands moving through the body. Death too has a live and ticking sound. Been listening to Nikki Finney read from Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry. In that Anthropocene talk, you you thread a saying by Lucille Clifton throughout your speech, uh, her lines, listen children, the earth is a black and living thing. You You, you weave this thread it through the speech that you're giving and you link your writing of poetry to your, your mother and your grandmother as seamstresses. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of an alternate title you had for this collection, which is the name of one of your poems, Linnea Nigra, which is Mm -hmm. in Latin means black line. So we could think of this ancestral line in your family, but it also is literally a biological line that happens when uh, a woman becomes pregnant on on her abdomen. And I wanted to think about or connect that to another question that you, you raise and explore and across your books. And that is the ways people in your family have responded to you not being a heterosexual woman and not continuing the family lineage in a biological way. Mm. Your, your mother at one point says the love between two women can't match that between a man and a woman. And early in this book, we get a line on its own page spoken by the whispering grandmothers who told love child she could stop our line. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about this question of lineage and line and family as it relates to being a queer poet and how you engage with this both, how how you engage with both of these things in your poetry, because it feels like, you are somehow honoring your love for your mother and your grandmothers and also 
pursuing the truth of your own life at the same time. So um, not an easy walk, I would imagine, but um, no. but if you can speak to the Linea uh, Nigra in, in this regard. I am honoring my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my mother's before whose names continue back across the water. I am absolutely. Uh, I would not be here uh, for if not for them. I also, in my quirky, passionate way, refuse to not be myself, refuse to think that I cannot follow my own black line to the end and um, and have the audacity in a good way, I hope, to believe that the mythic grandmothers at the fence who are furious at me for having stopped my matrilineal line also go their separate ways in the evenings home to their chair to pick up a copy of rice the world is round on wings made of gauze love child's hotbed of occasional poetry head off and split and they read a story from one of their daughters they read, they take in something that is not another child, that is not a daughter or a son that I have given birth to, but something that has weight, something that feels, something that is alive, something that has been raised by me, something that clings saves. There is no comparison between a book and a human being, and I'm not trying to make that here. I am trying to say that I will be accountable to my quirky, different, outlier, gay self, and the things that I give birth to matter. The things that I give birth to give birth to other things. And I wanted to put their fury because I was met by that when I started having conversations with my family and my mother and my father and I came out to them. I remember my mom broke down in tears and I asked her why was she crying? And she said, because you'll never have children. And I thought, mom, well, that's a very narrow um, definition of telling you that I'm a lesbian. But that was her definition. And it wasn't true. I, we had a good conversation about that. She got, she dried her eyes. And even though I didn't have children, I have this big maternal place in my heart where I, my students and my my friends and the people I love know that I am a nurturer. I am, 
a caretaker. Uh, I want, that's, that's a huge part of, I think, giving birth to someone or to something. And I have, I have come to great peace about it. There are so many children in the world who need loving, whether I gave birth to them or not. There's so many words and stories and ideas that need birthing. And I want to be that person. And so once again, David, I've taken a word <laughs> and, and opened it up and stretched it out and not allowed the world to give me the first definition, but allowed my own mm, imperfect self to swim through those waters in order to say to us and to, to say to poets and artists and um, anybody who cares about this moment that we are in on the planet right now, to work, it is, it is up to us to work really hard at living here together. And part of that has a lot to do with our narrow or our wide definitions of things, our wide, wider definitions of things. Not that they aren't truer, not that they are any less true than that narrow definition. In fact, they are more true because they are they go back to the root, they go back to the etymology of words and to our, our, our basic humanness, I think. You were on stage at the Geography of Hope conference with an indigenous artist and performer, Lila June Johnston. Mm-hmm. She was talking about how the most important question of our time is how do we return to self? How do yeah. we return home to who we are? And at the end of her talk, with you sitting on stage next to her, <laughs> you, you take her hand and say, if I had a daughter, I'd want her to be just like you. And then this young woman turns to you and says in return, I am your daughter. And I just remember like losing my breath at, at witnessing that exchange. You just made me cry on radio. That's crazy. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, that I haven't. Oh, that moment that moment when you are when you are not that was a moment I'll never forget and she was so she was my daughter she is my daughter you know it's like we have to we have to hold each other we I may I may never see her again I may I'd never seen her before Mm -hmm. you know and I and for us to find each other in that moment and recognize recognize each other that's a powerful, it was a powerful moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the ways there's a linea nigra running through love child, a black line is the celebration of, of black women from mm-hmm. Barbara Jordan and Lorraine Hansberry to Amy Sherald and Michelle Obama. But I was hoping in particular, you could talk about Paula Lee part and about mm-hmm. what you call the most arresting images of your entire life. And the making of the poem Topless in America in response. I had heard there was a woman walking from the southern the, the southern states to Washington, DC, 
and that I I had heard this is all news reports. I'm not really a um, social media person, and I had heard that she was topless, and I had heard that she had had her breasts removed because of breast cancer, and that she was walking to highlight the cause of breast cancer in America. And when I saw a photo of her, I remember not being able to move for a long period of time. I remember thinking, this is the most arresting photograph I've ever seen in my life. I can remember being a girl in the South and my mother teaching me the ABCs of modesty. I can remember as I grew up, um, how, how those things, how those stories and those, those lessons stayed with me. And I remember listening to um, Paula Leapheart say why she was walking, why her daughter was with her and what she wanted to accomplish. And I thought I had never seen anything so powerful in my life. And I wanted to write about it because again, that moment became a hotbed. I wrote about it in my journal. I wrote about what I felt like looking at her with walking pants on, pushing her daughter's stroller and nothing else. It was just, if you have to really be I think you have to be female. You have to be a woman. You have to be a girl to know how the culture covers you up after a certain age until you decide, you know, if you don't want to do that. But and then and then if you don't do that, the names that come your way. Right. So you have to go back to my father calling me love child and not those other names that I spoke of at the beginning of this interview. And so I wanted to write something for this moment. Um, I also, and this, this is how I write, this is process. I was listening, I was thinking about having seen this photograph and in the next instant, maybe that same afternoon, I was listening to NPR and there was this anthropologist talking about how a person, how a human body moves. I can't, you know, you can't go looking for this stuff. You just have to be, I think, awake and alive to the universe. And so in that poem, I talk a lot about, I love anatomy, love it. And I was talking about how this, what, where this, what the spine does when you're walking, you know, what happens to the hips, what happens to the shoulders. And it just all came together in that way you've been talking about, David, how I'm juxtapositioning anatomical things and this woman walking uh, in the name of breast cancer research. How, if you were to put those two things on a piece of paper, you'd go, ah, I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> but once you start, you take the pairing, you take the, sh- the, 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 the razor or the pencil lead and you start shaving off the edges of things and things start resembling each other. And you say, oh, you can put Emerson on one page and you can put Sandra Bland across from, from, from him. And those two, those two quotes can absolutely 
um, be talking to each other. And so it's not the first idea. It's in the, it's in the thinking about it. It's in the steeping. It's in the, it's in the, the, the slow melting of two ideas into each other that those two dimensions can come together. And so I really love that poem a lot. I really love what happens to, to me on the walk, right? I, it, it's, you know, I'm not there. I'm, 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 it's, it's, it's truth meets a fictive uh, story as well. And so I'm not trying to do journalism. I'm not in pursuit of that. That's for other people who are um, doing the who, what, when, where, and why. I am just looking at what I have been given and then what I imagine along this journey and what rises to the surface for me. I was watching some videos of Leapart talking and walking where she says that we all have scars, that mm-hmm. our scars are there for a reason, that they are they are our stories, mm-hmm. and that she didn't want to hide hers. Mm-hmm. And that flipping of the narrative of something that seems limiting or constricting or something to hide that maybe is normally considered shameful and making it a source of liberation. It yes. made me think of your um, your interview at ESPN where you talked about your interest in sports growing up mm. and how you talked about that as a girl, it was the one place where you had the freedom of movement. Yes. And I, I wanted to hear a little bit about that because you do have poems in here. Um, some of the longer poems that we're not reading are some of the, the great reasons to pick up Love Child, some of the most remarkable ones, like Ode to the Girl on a Wheel. Um, could yeah. you talk a little bit about... Um, sports and liberation? Yes, I, again, growing up in the, in a very traditional, very conservative South Carolina uh, with a mother who um, believed in that. I watched my two brothers, I'm the middle child, and I watched my, my bookend brothers romp and roam and dive and, uh, you know, run out in the sun with just their shorts on and I was always told, and I, in the first couple of books, I, I explore this a lot, you know, be still, keep your dress down, keep your knees closed, uh, put your hands in your lap. Um, you know, given on Easter Sunday, a fake muff to put my hands in, this last thing in the world I wanted was a, something to put my hands in. My hands were always flying about, you know, gesticulating and drawing in the air and I couldn't do that like my brothers, you know, I also couldn't just take off running across the field because girls didn't do that. And so um, I loved sports. I, I did any, if, if it was open to girls, I, I did it. I, I was on, I, I swam, I learned how to swim. I, I ran track. I played softball I, in the backyard. Even I was pretending to um, train for the Olympics. I told my mother. So I, put up a, a, a wooden side horse and, and jumped over it every day. And if I had just wanted to like run, you know, without purposely doing something, I don't know that she would have let me do it. She was, you know, part of it was fear. You know, you have fear for girl children in the South and, and other places as well. So I had to always couch it in something like I'm doing this because one day I'll be a uh, Wilma Rudolph or a, uh, 
you know, somebody else. And she'll go, okay, go practice. So sport was always something that I found um, great pleasure in. And I excelled at it. I played tennis, uh, I played basketball. Um, I was always a quick study with, with athletic kinds of things and, and still love um, the body and movement. And when I was um, asked by ESPNW to write that occasional poem um, for them, I, I, I started doing research on, you know, just, I thought, what if, what are the things that women have given society beyond sport and beyond their excelling in, in different kinds of sport? And I just, the flood waters, holy moly, just opened up with all kinds of things that I had never, that I had no idea um, women had, again, uh, given to society so it would be a better place. And I thought, well, I've got to bring those things in like the Murphy bed and like white out and uh, the paper bag, the dog walking leash. Come on. Nobody tells little girls that in, in this day and age. And I think it would matter if little girls knew I do too. that big girls had, had, you know, invented these things and made society better. So one of my ways um, as a poet, to make society turn and look at the things they won't teach us is to put it in a poem in the most poetic, creative, you know, undidactic. I'm not trying to jump up on the table and rant. I am trying to empower and stretch those words again that you talked about into words that more of us can swim in. Well, on the opposite page from this poem, this occasional poem you wrote for ESPN, Ode to the Girl on a Wheel, is the image of a bird looking backward, which mm -hmm. is the symbolized image for the African word Sankofa from the Akan people of Ghana. And it is meant to remind us that it isn't a taboo to fetch what is at risk of being left behind. And the bird's body forms a circle in its reaching back. And there's the obvious connection of this circle to the poem about cyclists, but you also have this long standing engagement with circles. The, mm. the narrator of your collection, The World is Round, is a as of yet to be born infant. Perhaps you as the infant in the incubator looking out at the world through the incubator's round opening. Um, but it feels like we can connect this idea of the circle to so many things that we've already discussed today that a hand would reach through the incubator circle to touch you and check in on you, that the circle is connected to care and lineage, or in the case of the Sankofa, to making sure to fetch what is at risk of being left behind. But also your love of basketball and that you chose a sport of circles with the ball and the hoop. But I wanted to talk about it in relationship to photography, about that circle through which to see the world also being a, a potentially a lens. And I'm, I'm thinking of the impact that the Leapheart images had on you and wanted to return to the way this book isn't just a book of text, but is an engagement with image. And with many of these poems being ekphrastic and often ekphrastic in relationship to photography. And the infant in your collection, World is Round, is called The Infant Photographer. And that collection has the lines not with my mind, but with full body camera, do I remember this? 
and not with any eye, but with skin did I see this. And similarly in your poem Pluck from your collection Rice, there are the lines, before you watch anymore, love your eyes. And your latest collection opens with the line, the eye wall is human. Talk to us about circles and eyes and lenses and incubators and photographs. When I was about 15, 15 was a really critical moment in my life. I was at my grandmother and grandfather's farm at the upstate in the upstate of South Carolina. And my uncle Billy was my mother's brother, youngest brother had come home from Vietnam many, many um, years ago. And he brought three trunks with him when he left Vietnam. And I opened one, um, disobediently opened one and found 12, I would say, camera lenses. Uh, there was five cameras, old Nikon F uh, cameras with, he was a, an amazing photographer. And just like I have a photo uh, uncle who was a photographer, my brother's, my father's brother was a photographer. My mother's youngest brother was a photographer. And I continued this moment of disobedience by taking the cameras out and, uh, and figuring out how the lenses attached. This is a, these were trunks that were at the top of a barn on this hundred acre farm. And I sat with my legs out of the window and I'm closing my eyes as I tell you this story because I can see it so clearly and because it, was, it had such impact on me. And as I, I lined up the lenses and I had the one camera and when I put on the wide angle lens, I could see, I was amazed and looked through it. I could see so wide. When I put the telephoto lens, I pointed it on the backside of a cow and I could see his tail swishing up in the air. It's so close. And I would, I kind of jolted because I was like, look through the lens. And then I looked to see if I was really looking at what I was looking at. And then there were other lenses. There was an underwater lens uh, that made everything kind of woozy. And I, I started thinking about writing and lenses. And to this day, 40 years later, I teach by telling my writing students about the differences between those lenses. So you want to go up close to somebody. You want to talk about their face. Put on a telephoto lens. You want a wide angle of the whole family out under the trees. You don't want to just focus on one person. That wide angle will be perfect. You want to do some... Uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, writing about um, fantastical things. Maybe that underwater lens will give your edges some, some fantastical moments there. And so as a girl, I discovered these lenses and photography. Five years later, when I graduated from college, Uncle Billy gave me the, the Nikon F and one lens, not the others. And I began my walk through life with a camera over my arm, in my purse, in my bag. And I would stop and I could just see differently. 
And sometimes when I think about preparing a book and what I'm, what is there, I'm looking through different lenses of my heart and my head and my belly in order to see how it all lines up. When I, when I looked at the pages of this book, everything had to go on a big empty wall so that I could see that beginning that you so astutely um, targeted when we first started talking. I wanted that to be the entranceway. I wanted that to be the foyer for the rest of the book. Mm. I wanted you to walk under those visuals and those things before you got to the first room, the first poem. And I wanted you to feel something around you before you got there. And so looking through cameras for most of my life and looking at, you know, the, the, the photograph is less about what you're looking at and more about the photographer. I've always believed that to be true. And so what you focus on and how you, how you aim the lens and do you get the, do you get the bird on the top of the, the calf or do you wait for the bird to fly away? Is it, is it the bird on the calf or is it both of them? Making those split set, second decisions is really important to me as a, as a writer. Um, and they become the hotbeds that I then look at to become the longer poems. But the circle is the most, is the most sacred geometric symbol in the entire universe. There's no more critical, important thing we can draw on a piece of paper. No more thing we can sit in in a, in a classroom full of young, hungry minds than a circle. There's, you know, everything we do should be in a circle, not with our backs to each other, but face to face, equal in, in that way. And so the circle I have drawn in every hotbed, in every journal book for, you know, for all of my life. And so figuratively and visually, I'm always trying to get back to that circle as a poet, as a, as a writer, and as a person who wants to be a good citizen of this planet. Well, one of, one of the longtime listeners and supporters of Between the Covers is herself an amazing poet who happens to also be friends with Ross Gay. Mm. And she passed along with Ross's blessing a copy of the talk he gave about you and your work <laughs> when you won the Aiken Taylor Award, mm. a talk I believe he gave with you in the audience. And he named his talk B Camera Black Eyed Aperture after a line from one of your poems, a poem that ends your collection head off and split. And in his meditation on those words, he says, to be black eyed, yes, perhaps, to have the eyes of a black person. And we can have a lot of conversations about what that means, but it means something. But I'm going to say, at very least, it means to see black people. For Finney's model for us has been since her earliest poems to see black people, to her eyes and pencil on her beloveds. And then later Ross says, this looking, this black-eyed opening, not looking away is a poetics. Yes, but as any poetics is, it is also an ethics. What we look at what we see and how and if we say what we see is an ethics. Tender black looking with the light coming through 
is an ethics, kin to testimony, kin to witness, I think I'm saying. I will not not see you, Finney's work says again and again. I will look and say what I see. This witness is my occasion with my pencil in my ear. And I guess I wanted to hear, presuming that you see yourself in Ross Gay's loving offering gaze of on you more about the poetics and ethics of looking of poetry as witness or even when he says this witness is my occasion to think of the ways occasional poetry can and does bear witness does anything leap to mind when you hear hear him speak to you through me again I remember sitting in the audience and listening to Ross read those words, calling calling what I do, my process, my, my way of living, my way of writing, my way of, of being accountable to where I am and who I am, a, a poetics and I had, you know, you. If you're if you're living your life truly, if you're living it and following the path that you're following, you're you're not trying for those things to be a poetics. You are true to them. You're trying to be true to them. And it's hard to talk about whether, you know, what he said, because of the, it's coming from his eyes and his sensibilities. And this is where this is, I landed here. I love where I landed. All the things that have made me who I am and the writer that I am have been unfolding for all of my life since the, since the moment of the incubator <laughs> when my mom had to leave me in the hospital and for a week. And this nurse came into that world and put her hand through a circle of plastic and checked on me and made sure I was alive, made sure I was breathing, made sure that the jaundice that I had as an infant was going away. And that circle meant everything. I knew, <laughs> I, you know, I don't remember this with my mind. I remember somebody's hand checking on me. And so from the very moment of birth, I feel like I am a witness to that circle, to those to human beings who reach for each other, to, for human beings who refuse to be disconnected from the larger world. And I will proceed in that manner in different ways for the rest of my life. And the fact that I started writing occasional poems uh, when I was 15 and 16 and didn't know they were occasional poems that they, that they fit under some awning or um, 
you know, rubric. I was writing. I, I was asked to do something I love to do, and I was at, and I wanted to do it well. I was asked to do something somebody thought I could do well, and so I wanted to do it well. And there were carpenters and nurses and doctors and all those people. So why couldn't there be a poet too? Well, if you'll indulge me, I want to read one more little section from that same talk of Ross's because it raises something that is probably difficult to answer, but I think it's important to ponder. And this is, this is Ross again from that same talk. It feels crucial to me to mention that Finney's witness is as complex as the accordion wings of a swallowtail. Her practice of witness, her black-eyed looking, her work, while often articulating and studying and testifying to the brutalities of white supremacist patriarchy, is not rooted in resistance to white supremacist patriarchy, although her poems often resist those things. I'm saying Finney's work and vision and witness is far too capacious for brutality to be the ground from which it grows, which is a danger and a risk when we write about the brutal. For if we make the brutal the ground of our imaginations, the ground of our poetic lives, we come to need the brutal. I want to say that again. If we make the brutal the grounds of our imaginative and poetic lives, we will come to need the brutal for our poetic and imaginative lives. Our poems will need the brutal, which is not good for our poetry, nor is it good for the soul or each other. This is to me a profoundly important point or question. How do we write a rich poetry of witness that does not make brutality the ground? A rich poetry of witness that articulates or responds to or contests or resists brutality while not granting brutality the status of essential truth. And he goes on to say that your work is an answer in as much as it comes from a ground, from a soil. And I was hoping you might be able to speak to finding one's ground as a poet so that one's poetry isn't reactionary and and thus shaped by that which one resists but grows from its own hotbed i think it's a unique position to have been born in 1957 at the beginning of you know near the beginning of the vietnam war and also at the beginning of the civil rights era the human rights era, um, gay rights era, women's rights era. And to go through my formative years with the Vietnam War as backdrop and also the sound of uprisings and people filling the streets and people finding their voices and people refusing to stay in the background any longer. And I was a witness to all of that as a teenager, as a younger than a teenager. And I remember always asking myself, what will you sound like, love child? Mm. 
And at the end of the essay that's in this book, the essay that's um, at the beginning of the book, where I talk about where I was raised and talk about Lorraine Hansberry and talk about my father um, and my box of pencils. The, end, the last two lines of that essay are really critical to what you just asked. I am accountable to truth and to beauty, both of them. No more one than the other. I am accountable to truth and to beauty. And the last line of the essay says, I am love child, the insurgent sensualist. I am not just the insurgent. I come with the sensualist backdrop. I am not just seeking truth. I am also seeking beauty. And I have been able to remind myself of that balancing act my entire life. It has been absolutely critical to my voice, not just as a poet, as a poet, as a teacher, as somebody living with other human beings on this planet. I will give you both of those. I have to because I came up at a time where people were just screaming fire and somebody else was screaming peace and love. Somebody else was shouting, kill somebody. And somebody else was like, come sit, let's talk. I had the benefit, and I know this about me, of all those voices spinning around me, David, in a circle. A circle. <laughs> not a, not a, not a, you know, not a um, square, a circle. And because of that, as I've turned around the circle, I remember clearly saying, that's what I want to do. Mm, I don't want to do that. I want to do more of that. Yes, a cup of that, two cups of that, five <laughs> cups of that. Truth, beauty, insurgent, sensualist. That's how I see myself. That's what my words come out of. I will not be defined outside of what my father named me. If I allow that to happen, all of the work he put into me would be a lie. Well, I want to I want to stay with circles as we come full circle. Um, so when I think about reaching into the ground or the bird that's reaching back or the hand reaching into your incubator and thinking about circles and cycles and the linea nigra, I was hoping we would end with Hotbed 58 about you and Toni Morrison and then Hotbed 15, which ends the book, but really is the beginning of your conception of the book as mm -hmm. a book. So if you're open to it, to introduce us to these circles and lineages of Hotbed 58 and 15, um, and, then, and then read them for us. When, you, when I read this, I think it's important to, because we've talked about your, your great question about lenses, right? And I mentioned that um, there was an underwater lens 
where the edges uh, became fantastical. And I, I just want to make that little intro to this really, really important hotbed for me. It's December in Sweden, and I've come to pick up Miss Morrison from the Nobel banquet at Stockholm City Hall. I'm driving the washed and waxed black limo. I have on my vintage Pullman Porter hat. My locks are tucked tight under the rim of the 50-year-old brim. She won't recognize me. She won't remember our meeting many years ago when I stood in a very long line waiting for her to sign my hot off the press copy of Song of Solomon. I had my first book on wings made of gauze hiding under my arm as a gift. I wanted to show her evidence of what her words had helped me realize. An hour later, when I finally reached her, she stared at the front of the book for a minute, then turned it over, a startling black and white photo stretched from top to bottom. She looked from the photo back to me. Look at you, then added, you working? Her statement was black woman familiar, something one of my aunts might have said to encourage audacity. It was the question that startled me. Had I been waiting for a compliment and not a question about devotion? I never answered. The bookstore assistant pushed me along, welcoming the next reader in line. I have kept the moment and the question over my desk for the last 30 years. The city hall doorman brings me back to the streets of Stockholm when he opens the car door for Miss Morrison. The ceiling light pops on and he helps her into the dark back. Of course, because she is who she is, she notices everything. My poking out locks, the cool, nicely visible Pullman seal on the front of the hat. She seems to be staring at its reflection in the rearview mirror. Nice hat, she says, without giving comment about the wayward lock. Thank you. The limo driver's training course said not to speak unless spoken to. I don't look her way. I've been practicing playing it cool for weeks. She calls Lois on her new Nokia 100, the latest in 1993 mobile phone technology. I've never seen one before. Of course, Miss Morrison would have one of the first. She raises the phone to her beautiful Howard U. dramaturge lips and leans into the back seat like a woman who knows good leather from bad, like a woman who has just won the Nobel Prize in literature and left nothing worth hearing unsaid for the moment. She's relaxed and staring out the window into the world she owns. I can tell she's tired of Swedes and caviar and just wants to get back to her Hudson River Drive. I say nothing and ease away from the traffic light into the starry, frigid Stockholm night. I want to open my mouth and tell her the backstory about quitting my job and buying a ticket to Sweden and applying for this part-time job in order to drive her wherever she wants to go 
while she is in Stockholm to receive the greatest literary award in the world, but not even Toni Morrison would believe my long Afro galaxy story that is absolutely true. I try to use only the side mirrors to see what I need to see and get us where we need to go because if she notices me looking at her in the rear view, she'll know I'm a fraud. First, she'll see the river banking in my eyes and next the ocean gathering in my face, the deep water of how grateful I am. I am here in Stockholm because I want to thank her for writing the books she needed to read and for making more than one copy. I don't want her to see or ask me any questions about the journal book I have open on the front seat. I don't want her to ask what a black woman with locks is doing driving a limo in Stockholm two weeks before Christmas, one night after the sacred night of her Nobel Prize award. A coincidence? Hardly. You know how she likes to follow her questions out backwards all the way to the end? Red light. What a great black woman laugh she has. Lois must have said something Lorraine, Ohio crazy. Miss Morrison's laugh could make a black man wearing blue silk take flight off the top of a hospital building and not look down. She tells Lois to hold on a minute and covers the speaker holes in the funny shaped phone with her writing hand that sparkles with a one-of-a-kind blue sapphire. Well, look at you, Miss Pullman Porter, all these years and you still haven't answered my question. Haven't you heard how I don't like to repeat myself? Maybe just this once. You working? Hotbed 15. She walks up to me, every step intentional. Her clothes are dark and tailored. I am sitting on the high stool that waited behind me during the reading. I should get up and follow the crowd to the book signing table, but this is my favorite part, the lingering, the talking with the people who could have been anywhere else tonight, but who instead came to spend a little time with me, to ask me about something they heard in my ocean of orange-blooded octopus words. I stand up as she arrives because there is something matter-of-fact about her. It is something that reminds me of the women in my family. I have never seen her before in my life. But still I stand up. When she arrives in front of me, her mouth opens, closes, opens again. She leans deeply into my airspace. She is not afraid of being close. You have nothing to do with how beautiful you look. Your mama and daddy did that. But you have everything to do with your beautiful mind. I try to respond, but I am embarrassed, caught off guard, she doesn't wait for me to find my way back to my words or to any new words about what she has laid at my feet. She stops, half turns back around, not to say anything else, but to make sure I have inhaled every fragrant thing she has now shawled about my shoulders. 
She stares at me. She knows I heard what she said. For the next 30 years, after every reading I am ever invited to give, I will linger and wait for her, and she will never appear again. Nikki Fenny, it was a deep honor and pleasure to talk with you today. David, I, um, you've kind of taken my breath away again. I, this, is a, this interview has been very special, and I so appreciate the work you did before you got here. That, uh, that always matters to me, and it can be seen in every question you asked. So it was a pleasure to be here. It was a joy to do the work. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, um, I appreciate also all the work we did to make this happen with <laughs> microphone and, <I> know. <laughs> and Zoom and Skype. And yes, we had to, we had to really uh, to fight to do this. And, and now, we, now we know why. Thank yes. you so much. We were talking today to poet Nikki Finney about her latest collection, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. So Nikki, I know we've been going an extraordinary long time. Oh no, it was, I just, if it was a bad interview, I would have cut this off a long time. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad you this didn't was think rich. so. Good. This was David, this is uh, the richest interview yeah. I've ever done. I'm serious. Uh, I'm not kidding. I really appreciate this. This, this is, this, this one will go down in the books, my dear. I'm telling you. you I'm very you moved by it. that far and 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 around and you were my witness today and so oh. i greatly appreciate it well it was an honor to to be the photographer yeah uh. <laughs> yes. today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO but at the volunteer powered non-commercial listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naven. You can find more of Nikki Finney's work at NikkiFinney.net. And Nikki has selected several excerpts from Lorraine Hansberry's posthumous book of letters and diaries to be young, gifted, and black to read from and discuss for the Bonus Audio archive. Joining Bonus Audio from John Keane, Hanif Abdurraqib, Christina Rivera-Garza, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Ted Chang, Garth Greenwell, and many others. All of this and much more available to supporters of the show can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, who tirelessly help make this show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department. Ishwena Cantor in Publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.